Let's turn now, brothers and sisters, to the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, reading the verses 10 through 23. And there, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes the following. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So far, the reading from Scripture. Also with those last words of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in our minds and also in our hearts, and you are Christ's, we turn to our confession of the truth of Scripture and I was informed that you are beginning with Lord's Day 1 again, and so that's where we will go. This afternoon, Lord's Day 1, actually a beautiful Lord's Day to consider on Easter Sunday. Lord's Day 1, we'll read the entire Lord's Day. The sermon will focus mostly on the first question and answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, 
but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that, without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. After the proclamation of these truths of Scripture, let's respond unto the Lord in song. And we sing that well-known hymn 15, Comfort, comfort now, my people. Speak of, feast, speak of peace, so says your God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning under sorrow's load. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's safe to say that we all enjoy comfort, we all look for comfort, and there are times in our life that we simply long for comfort. But what then is involved in that comfort? How would we define it, to say it that way? Often when we speak about comfort, we think about those things that are comfortable. For instance, we can probably think of the most comfortable chair that we have in our home. It's that one particular chair that somehow just seems to feel so good when you sit down in it, especially after a long, hard day's work. But it's not only the furniture that we sometimes associate with comfort, it can be even the temperature of a room. We say, now, this is a comfortable temperature. The one person might like it a little bit higher, a little bit warmer, the other person a little bit cooler. But we say, that's the temperature at which I am comfortable, somewhere around 20 degrees, we presume. There's something else that we often use with the word comfort, and that's comfort food, and that too may be different from one person to the other, but it is a particular dish, a particular meal that you say, well, when I have that meal on the table, that's what I call comfort food. It tastes so good, it leaves me with that warm feeling inside. And so we could add to the list, of course, but there is a number of different things, whether it's the furniture that we sit in or the temperature of the room or the food that we eat, and when it's all just right, when it's just the way that we like it, we say, now I'm in my comfort zone, 
and the circumstances are just right that I, I feel at ease and the stresses of this life seem to fade away at least for a while. I think we understand though, brothers and sisters, that comfort is not just for the body, it's also for the soul. In fact, even the world in its foolishness would say that it's not just comfort for the body that we look for and long for, but we're looking for a comfort of the soul as well. Because you can have just the right furniture, you can have just the right temperature, you can have a beautiful meal on the table, but if your heart is heavy and your soul is wrestling, turning, struggling, then brothers and sisters, all the creature comforts in the world mean very little, maybe even nothing, if the soul is in turmoil. And so even the world in its foolishness, as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's looking for some type of circumstance. It's looking for something that will give this feeling of peace and ease, stress-free for both body and soul. And so it's no surprise at all that when the catechism begins to summarize the truths of God's word and we hear that word comfort, we almost immediately perk up our ears. If the catechism is going to offer us comfort, we're all ears. Please tell us more, we would say. And yet right from the start, before we even get to the answer, already in the question, there's an indication that this comfort that we're going to hear about is not like the comfort that the world offers or longs for. There's two things that send us in a different direction. First of all, that word only. What is your only comfort? And we want to respond and say, you mean we only get to pick one? I can think of a whole collection of different things that if they're all just right, then I feel comforted. Why just one only comfort? And furthermore, it's a comfort that is to be there and to serve us both in life and death. But you see, that's very different. Because if we are on our deathbed, that so many of those things that we once thought, well, ah, that gives me some comfort. At that point, they make no difference. Just to give one example, when people are dying, they usually don't want to eat anymore. Even that food which was so enjoyable for them throughout their life, they have no desire. They have no appetite. The comfort that we need in death is very different. And so even now as we go to the answer, we are prepared by the catechism that this is something different. This is wisdom from above. This is not what the world offers, brothers and sisters. And what is it? It is what the Apostle Paul announces at the end of this chapter. It is what we then confess here in Lord's Day 1. No, the comfort, the only comfort that is there in life 
and in death, in this life of sorrow, in this life of stress and anxiety, but also when it comes to prepare to leave this life. What is it? You are Christ's. Or, as we confess it, I belong to Christ. And so let us hear more about this comfort, also how we will use it and need to use it in both life and death. Comfort or comfortable? The answer is, I belong to Christ. We'll see how he fully paid for us, fully paid for all of our sins. He fully preserves us in any and all circumstances, and he fully prepares us for his return and life everlasting. First of all, he fully paid for us. If you look again once more at answer one of the Catechism, brothers and sisters, there are three things that are closely connected right from the beginning. I am not my own, but I belong. That's the first thing. I belong, body, soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The next thing is he's fully paid. So by belonging, we have a full payment for all of our sins. And then the third thing is, Christ has set me free from all the power of the devil. Belonging, fully paid, and set free. You can take all three of those, combine them into one, and say, Christ is my Redeemer. I am redeemed. Because even though we often use that word redeem and make it basically as a synonym to save, redemption, salvation, there's actually something special about that word redemption. Redemption means that someone who is, is bound, someone who's in a slavery, is set free. That's why the scripture says that the Lord redeemed his people out of Egypt. There they were in bondage. There they were in slavery. And the Lord set them free. That's what we hear here in this Lord's Day as well, is set me free from all the power of the devil. How are people set free? As the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's, there's two ways. There is the so-called wisdom of the world, which turns out to be foolishness, and then there is the wisdom of God, which the world might think is foolishness, but is in fact wisdom. And those two different ways, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, they are reflected in how people think about freedom. Let me give you an example of how the world thinks about freedom. In 1948, a very important document was written and published. It's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It was written by the United Nations. It contains 30 theses. When you hear that word theses, you may think of Martin Luther and the 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg. Well, the United Nations also, as it were, nailed 30 theses. 30 theses to the door of world events and world direction. 
1948, this is what the United Nations said about freedom. Thesis one, all human beings are born free and born equal in dignity and equal in rights. Everyone's born free, everyone has equal dignity, everyone has equal rights right from the start, their very first breath. Thesis four, wisdom of the world. No one, therefore, shall be held in slavery. Slavery and the slave trade shall be prohibited in all of its forms. And you can see how thesis four is connected to thesis one. If everyone is born free, then any kind of slavery, any kind of slave trade is going right dead set against the way that people are born. You can understand then how the United Nations says that's wrong, that has to be prohibited, taken away. But is that true? Are we really born free? Let's follow the word of God, brothers and sisters, and the wisdom of God. We start in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 talks about how we are born. It's the same topic as what the United Nations spoke of, but a different truth proclaimed. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth, I was born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Is sin freedom? Not at all. We go from Psalm 51 to John chapter 8, where our Lord and Savior speaks about a connection between sin and actually slavery, just the opposite of freedom. John chapter 8, turning to verse 34, John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, there's to be no doubt about this, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. You see, brothers and sisters, there is in sin not just a mistake, not just something that we've done wrong in the sight of God. Of course, it is that. But it is far more, as Jesus Christ says. In sin, there is, there is a strength, there is a grip, there is a power, a power for evil. And that sin wants to take control of us. This is what the Lord also said when Cain killed Abel. He said that sin it's crouching at the door. It wants to control you. And you see, this is exactly where the wisdom, so-called, of the world goes wrong and where the wisdom of God opens up a whole new understanding. All of these babies born into this world, they may look to the human eye to be free, but they're not. 
Says the Lord, as they come forth from their mother's womb, as they come forth into this world, they come with sin. They come with a sinful nature. And that sin is a slaving sin. It is a sin that binds us in a bondage against which we cannot struggle and break free of our own. And that's why when the catechism takes the word of God and it summarizes things about comfort, it starts there. Not assuming that we are born free, but with the assumption that we need to be freed. And that's why the world can't understand it. The world can't understand. Why is it that all of this struggle and all of this misery and even since 1948... And this very clear declaration of human rights. And now we're some 70 years later. Are we any further ahead? Is there any less groaning in this world? Any less struggle? Any less crime? Any less war? Any less brokenness? No. It's still all there. The people are longing and they're looking. Where is the comfort? Where is the hope? Here, brothers and sisters, belonging to Christ. Because if we're not set free from the power of the devil, if we're not set free from the binding power of sin, then it's just misery and misery and struggle and struggle. Then there is no comfort. But this then is the heart of of the gospel. I'm not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the world would say, don't go there. Don't say that. The wisdom of the world would object. Don't say, I am not my own. As soon as you say that, you give up your freedom. You come under the bondage and the slavery of someone else or some other force. The world says, whatever you do, hold on to your independence. State so firmly, I am my own. That's the way to comfort. That's the way to hope. But the wisdom of the world is not wisdom. It is foolishness. It is exactly in this saying, I'm not my own, but I belong to Jesus Christ. I am fully dependent upon him, just like we begin every worship service, confessing our dependence upon the Lord. That's where true comfort lies. And that's where we also find the relief in the battle against the devil. Isn't it so striking, brothers and sisters, that when the catechism starts to, and it's just Lord's Day 1, it's just the beginning, but of all the things that might be brought into the very first answer, the catechism knows life here below so well, and it speaks about the power of the devil. And we'll come back in future Lord's Days 
but it's right there. The same one, the ancient serpent who came into the garden right in the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3. He's now here right at the beginning of the Catechism 2. And we don't just push him off and say, oh, it's just the devil. It's just Satan. It's even acknowledged that this ancient serpent has strength. He has power. He has might. But you know what he doesn't have? Divine power. He may have might, but he does not have almightiness. And even though ever since the fall into sin, he's been deceiving and attacking and luring and tempting. And God's people have wrestled against this enemy, the devil, and all of his hosts, all of his demons. And the battles have been fierce, both personally and communally as church. And yet, right from the start, we learn in Lord's Day 1, and so we also confess, as strong as he is, as powerful, as deceptive, and as persistent as this devil is, causing so much stress, causing so much damage, But Christ is victorious over him. And Christ has set us free from the power of the devil. Not from the presence of the devil. Oh, he's still around, roaring like a lion, seeking him he can devour. But we don't belong to Satan. We don't belong to the devil. We belong to our risen Savior, our faithful, our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. And someone will ask, yeah, but how do we know? Because the devil didn't shed a drop of blood for any of us, for anyone. What's there just before the devil? the precious blood of Christ, brothers and sisters. It was Christ and Christ alone who made the sacrifice. The devil attacks, but the Christ laid down his life. And what is it that sets us free? What is it that pays for our sins? What is it that sets us free from the bondage of the devil? precious blood of Jesus Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul ends that chapter with those powerful statements, so short, but so much. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. As certainly as that bond is there within our triune God, and the Son belongs to the Father, Christ is God's. So also that bond now is brought down to us. You see how the connection there is in that verse. Christ is God's, but you belong to Christ. So intimate, so strong, so lasting.
So much so that this Christ then also preserves us fully, completely, no matter what the circumstances are. Indeed, in all things we confess, they all must work together for our salvation. And why can we be so confident of that? Because we belong. Because he purchased us. You know, already on a very human level, when you own something, when you've purchased something, you take care of that in a whole different way. Sometimes parents will say that about their children. They say, yeah, so long as the parents own it, then the children, oh, they may take care, but as soon as they have to put down some thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars, as soon as they have to purchase it for themselves, then their care goes to a whole other level. We understand that. When something is yours, truly yours, you have to take good care of it. Especially if it's not a material thing, but it's a person. If that child belongs to you, that's your son, that's your daughter. Then as parents, you have that calling, you have that responsibility to care. And that's what we hear here in the middle part of answer one. Christ also preserves me in such a way because I belong to Christ that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Not a hair can fall from my head. Maybe that happened this morning to you. Maybe you didn't even notice it. You combed, you brushed your hair and one fell out. Went in the sink. A little bit of water, swished away. Who cares about a hair, brothers and sisters? It's just a hair, we say. Wash it away. Who cares about your hairs? Your Father in heaven. Because even the little hairs on our head were purchased with the precious blood of his Son. Jesus Christ not only died for our souls, he died for our bodies. Christ not only paid his precious blood for our hearts and our minds, but our bodies right to the last hair. And so with that all-encompassing care, Christ, through the working of his heavenly Father, as we confess, makes sure that all things must work together. No matter how difficult they may be, no matter how hard the devil may try to uproot us and misdirect us. But the Father in control of all things makes sure that they must serve our salvation. And again, you may ask, yes, but how can I know for sure? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, our Father in heaven is building a temple. And that temple has a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. You can think of it this way. The whole church throughout all times and places 
including this congregation here in Owen Sound, including you and your family as part of this congregation. It's all part of this temple building work that God the Father is doing. And what's underneath it all? Jesus Christ, the sure foundation, the one who gave that sacrifice, the one who rose from the dead, and therefore everything that gets built within that church, everything that happens, everything that happens in this congregation and even in your life, it has to be connected to the foundation. It has to be. And that's why we confess with such assurance, all things must work together. Because the Father's not going to abandon the temple building project. He has it on the unshakable foundation. And everything that happens after that, it must be founded upon and flow forth from that work of Christ. It will be put together for us and our salvation. Even until the building is done. Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1, ends on two notes. Assurance and adoration. Praise, service to the Lord. By his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. We long for comfort, but we also long for assurance. You know, when a child is off playing and mom's in the kitchen, what does a child do? Every once in a while, the child will just peek around the corner. He just wants to know, just wants a little assurance. Oh, mama's still there. All is well. Even if something goes wrong, mama's there. Mom will take care of it. Children long for assurance. We are children of God. We long for assurance. What will happen next? What will happen tomorrow? What will happen in the next year? It's all of those things that we, that we don't know. It is, as the Apostle Paul says, the things that are to come. These are the things that take assurance away from us. These are the things that cause anxiety. But you see how the Apostle connects it all. He says, even the things that are to come, they're all yours. We say, ours? That's the one thing we, we don't at all have in our hand. The things that are to come. How can the Apostle Paul say the things that are to come are all yours? The only way is by what comes next. And you are Christ's. Because all things are in the hand of our Savior Jesus Christ. He rules over all, he knows all, he's planned all, and he's going to lead every single thing forward until eternal life. And because 
You belong to Christ, and only because you belong to Christ could we ever say that in him, even the things that are to come belong to us. We do not need to be afraid. And it's the Holy Spirit then sent from Christ who comes and he dwells in the temple that the Father is building. Not beside it. He dwells in the temple. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. He dwells within us. You see, the child is always looking to make sure that mom's not too far away. The Spirit is not close to us. The Spirit dwells within us. And what we have to go through between now and eternal life. We know not what is all to come. We know it's not going to be easy. In fact, we know that there's going to be a lot of tears. We know that there's going to be a lot of struggle. Scripture speaks of the valleys of this life. Scripture speaks about the life of sorrow, the life of struggle. It is not a nice, comfortable journey to eternal life. It just isn't. If we expect that, we're giving in to the ideas of the world, but not the reality of this life. But brothers and sisters, no matter how uncomfortable life might become, there is a comfort, assuredly. As we belong to Christ, Christ will preserve us and the Spirit of Christ will so dwell in us and prepare us. He will not leave us alone. And so, how could this first answer end but on a note of praise, on a note of service to the Lord. And this is what makes us willing and ready from now on to live not for a comfortable life, but for Him, for Christ. Because even if life gets really uncomfortable, He is, was, and will be your comfort. Amen.